All right. Welcome back to Rafford Reading Daily. We are continuing reading High Risers by Ben Austin. We are on chapter three, Catch As, Catch Can. Kelvin Cannon. On the western edge of Cabrini Green, in the industrial wilds between the river and the high rises, somewhere within the dumping grounds beneath an elevated roadway, an old witch was said to make her home. Kelvin Cannon had heard the story a thousand times. His mother told it to him at bedtime. His relatives and friends' mothers repeated it. His teacher cited it as a warning. The witch roamed the hills under the Ogden Avenue Bridge, just beyond the whites of the William Green homes. Any little boy or girl caught outside after dark, the witch would snatch up. Kelvin had even seen a sketch of her pinned to the bulletin board at the YMCA, like a wanted poster. A gypsy lady with colorless skin, long, matted hair, and flowing robes of rags. Kelvin's family was living in 534 West Division, one of the new white high-rises, when he was born in 1963. His parents had moved there from the west side, and before that from a river town in Mississippi. Kelvin had convulsions as an infant, and from a young age he believed himself in possession of uncommon powers of perception. He figured the tale of the witch had to be far-fetched. The more he considered it, the more he understood that adults probably put the story out there to keep children like him out of harm's way. The barons under the Ogden overpass were nowhere safe. You'd find broken down cars there, machine parts, cracked bits of road, and makeshift tents of cardboard and wood in which vagrants sometimes slept. His mother and teachers could just as well have said a big brown bear lived down there. Yet Kelvin had friends who swore they'd seen the witch. From the upper floors of their high-rises, these children pointed out their windows at the bridge directly below. Right there! That moving shadow, that's her. One boy, starting his paper route in the pre-dawn gloom, was startled when a figure zipped past him. He watched, unable to move, as the white blur slipped through a gap in the fence and disappeared into the hollow below the bridge. Then the boy ran. Kelvin stayed clear of the bridge after sunset. It was a precaution. He wouldn't even walk above it after dark. But in daylight, that was another story. The Ogden Bridge became his playground. The roadway slashed diagonally across the city's right-angle streets, and at Cabrini it formed into an overpass and veered sharply, nearly brushing against the back of the 1230 North Burling high-rise. Cars regularly took the curve too fast, and on rainy nights Kelvin could hear from the heights of his apartment the screech of tires followed by the crash. He was sure people died. The next morning, he and other boys would pick through whatever wreckage was left behind. They sometimes played jacks on the bridge's deck. They scampered up and down the stairs leading under it, their dares prompting jumps from even higher perches. By the piers below, they gathered up old mattresses and torn out car seats and flipped off them. He and his friends climbed in a mountain of coal. There was a steep hill, Hickory Hill, they called it. The boys took turns riding down it in shopping carts, unable to slow themselves or stop, even as they rode into traffic. It was thrilling. Sometimes they break open the shipping container stored under the bridge. You could turn them into a clubhouse. A boy who bought a dog training manual kept puppies there. They made slingshots and hunted the pigeons nesting in the rafters. An old woman in apartment 303 of Kelvin's building paid 25 cents a bird. Once when a group of them were throwing rocks at the windows of the old King Coal Company, a police car pulled up alongside them. The cops took hose 
the cops took hoses from the trunks of their cruisers and wore out their arms, beating the boys. In Kelvin's building, the boys hung out together in a great pack, two or three dozen of them. They were children Kelvin's age along with their brothers and cousins. Quote, every day was another adventure at Cabrini Green, end quote, Kelvin would say. They picked sides for games of football. Or they played 16-inch softball or baseball, and they took on the teams of boys from the surrounding high-rises. When they weren't venturing under the bridge, the boys sometimes set out for a game of catch-as-catch-can. They start in the morning, each of them darting off in a direction and trying not to get tagged. They sprint through the canyons between the white high-rises, dash up division, and race across the Ogden Avenue Bridge over the river in a maze of rail lines and squat factories. They kept on running over other bridges, through the surrounding parks, along the banks of the river, past the crowds on Chicago Avenue and the shops on Wells Street and back to Cabrini Green. Ogden Avenue provided a straight shot to the west side, to the massive Cook County Hospital and into the neighborhoods where Kelvin and many of the other boys had family. But the game's only rules were they couldn't leave the near north side. Games sometimes lasted an entire day, the boys' lungs burning, their legs wobbly after five or ten miles. When one of them was caught, the other guys jumped on him a bit, roughing him up with punches and kicks. Kelvin liked that about the game. It toughened him. He felt you needed that. Quote, growing up in Cabrini, you had to have heart, end quote, he'd say. There were hundreds of other rowdy thrill seekers roving about, the kids from each building forming their own packs. Your mom might sew pockets into your underwear so older boys didn't take your money on the way to the store. But Kelvin learned that you at least had to act like you weren't afraid. There were kids who wouldn't trade blows, who became targets, who couldn't fight their way to acceptance. Those kids stayed inside. They missed out on the fun, Kelvin said. Quote, those who weren't scared lived just about a normal life, end quote. Kelvin had heart. Few things scared him. But on his first day of school, at Jenner, he could not stop crying. The elementary school across the Vision Street in the basin below several of the Red Cabrini high-rises. Each morning, children spilled out of the nearby towers like coins from a slot machine. All those kids somehow fitting into Jenner, though just barely. It was the most crowded school in Chicago, with more than 2,500 students in the turn-of-the-century building meant to serve half that number. When his teacher... Miss Redmond tried to console him. Kelvin could tell she was a nice woman. He was able to see people's character like that. She assured him that everything would be fine. But Miss Redmond intimidated him as well. Although Kelvin had sprinted past countless white people on the streets of the near north side, he never before exchanged two consecutive sentences with one. And that brings us to a, a stopping of or a changing of the theme in this chapter. This this is sort of the uh, I think the first time that the experiences of children of uh, of kids in these in the in the public housing in Chicago has been illustrated, and I think that one of the things that is important about understanding the uh, residual effects that this uh, substandard living conditions had on on families and on generations and on communities is understanding the effects that it has on kids. Uh, and here you see that the first off the, the these young kids were 
were dehumanized by police officers. So they spoke about these kids were out playing and police car, a police car pulled up alongside of them and they, the police officers pulled out hoses and beat the boys. And so off back, as we spoke about in multiple books that we've read here is that the uh, people in certain communities from the beginning of or from as far back as they can remember, the concept of policing, the institution of policing has been delegitimized because of the relationship that they have had with police officers because of the uh, what would be considered crimes that they've seen police officers commit on them and commit on people that look like them, people that live near them. And they've seen them commit these crimes with uh, no accountability being had, with no punishment being had. And so uh Early on, besides just the fact that they're living in these substandard living conditions, besides the fact that it's poverty stacked on top of poverty, besides the fact that they've been uh, segregated and in that segregation, they have they don't have equal living. Uh, they also are dealing with police terrorism. They're also dealing with these as kids dealing with these things. That's a reality that they had to face as kids. And then once you get past that, you hear about how. You hear about the the experiences that kids had with other kids and with with fights and with scuffles and with worrying about being robbed. And so, again, that adds another layer where not only can the are these young people growing up with no trust for law enforcement, with seeing law enforcement violate their rights and with seeing law enforcement uh, assault and hurt them. But even the people that uh with their peers, they see that this this same type of thing happens from their peers to the point where uh, Kelvin said that some kids just didn't come outside or they didn't come around if they couldn't deal with the the type of uh, the type of activity that other kids were doing out there, uh, and so in in those two specific experiences are something that uh, the white kids, the middle class white kids, weren't dealing with uh, that even. Even if you went to lower class or poor white kids, uh, it was unlikely that they were dealing with these same type of uh, of experiences at this same rate because of the fact that they've been moved out of the public housing because of the fact that subsidies were being given. And so uh, working class white families were being uh, allowed an opportunity to try to uh, at least live in a, a, a area that was more conducive to raising children, that was more conducive to having a, a a healthy and happy life. And so off back, uh, these are young kids who are dealing with uh, segregation, uh, dealing with substandard living conditions, dealing with uh, violence that exists in those living conditions, and then dealing with uh, police terrorism inside of these living conditions as well. And they're coming from, uh, this is the 1950s that he was born in 1950s. So we're still in the 1950s, 1960s. So these are people who are also being born to uh, uh, black people and in black families that are still dealing with the traumas of the end of reconstruction in the South, the traumas of uh, 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 of the white supremacist ideology that was emanating in the South that led to them uh, migrating and coming to Chicago. And then Further past that, we hear about Kelvin's experiences with elementary school, and he was in a school that would that had twenty five hundred students, and it was built to have half that number. And not only what, not only that, this is a uh, in nineteen. Kelvin was born in nineteen fifty. Let me just get this right. This is in 
Okay, Kelvin was born in 1963, excuse me. So Kelvin's born in 1963, and this was a, a schoolhouse that they said was a turn-of-the-century building, which means it was built at the beginning of the 1900s. And so not only is it too many children, too many kids in this school, but it's also an outdated school. And so it's those two things let you know that they are not getting uh, adequate education, that they're not getting uh equal education to the white kids who we had, who we've been learning about uh, whose families are moving outside of this area and who are beginning to go to schools still that are segregated. And so I, I think that all those things have to be uh, noted. And, and, and again, we're in 1960s. This is the 1960s. And so as we've not only read with this book, but as we've read with multiple books in Rockford reading daily podcast, uh, from the moment that the first slave was brought over here and, uh, and, and brought into chattel slavery all the way to where we are right now in 1960s in this book, there has not been any equality. There has not been any equity. There has only been discrimination, oppression and exploitation. And so when you begin to ask the questions, uh, why have uh, why do black people or the black community deal with some of the. Uh, some of the things that they deal with still in 2021 in this day, it's because of the fact there has never been uh, a true effort by uh, the American government, by the American society to give equitability and to give equality to black people. Uh, and so I just think that those are things that we have to keep in mind as we are going through and, and reading this is not only in reading anything, we're not only just taking a snapshot of whatever your reading is about, not only taking a snapshot about this, for this, for example, this book is about, uh, mostly the 1900s and the living conditions uh, that were in the 1900s, specifically public housing in the 1900s. But to understand the impact that that has, you have to also be able to incorporate uh, understanding uh, slavery and understanding Reconstruction, understanding uh, the black codes. It's just a, a litany list of things that have to be able to, uh, you have to, Uh, combined together to get the full scope of the impact that some of these these decisions are having. <clears throat> okay. In 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. moved into a West Side tenement as part of his Chicago freedom movement. For King, it was an ambitious effort to expand the fight for civil rights from voting rights in the South to fair and open housing in northern cities. The extent of ferocity of Chicago's segregation made the city a fitting target, after he was stoned by angry residents during a march through all-white Marquette Park on the city's southwest side, King said, quote, The people from Mississippi ought to come to Chicago to learn how to hate, end quote. The city's large public housing complexes were the most prominent landmarks of its segregation. By the late 60s, what King called, quote, the Chicago Housing Authority's cement reservations, end quote, were home to some 143,000 people, almost all of them black. When King came to Cabrini-Green, speaking at the neighborhood's Wayman AME Church, he showed up in support of residents who wanted changes at the overcrowded and underfunded Jenner. Parents demanded that the school be equipped with science and foreign language labs, with an adequate library, and the remedial tutoring that many of the students required. They insisted that the white principal be fired for her racial bias. A newspaper story about the demonstrations included a photograph of little Cheryl Wilson, Dolores and Hubert's youngest daughter, her pigtails bouncing as she marched with others, chanting that the principal must go. Three years earlier, 
when 200,000 black students in Chicago boycotted their segregated and inferior public schools as part of a coordinated, quote, Freedom Day, end quote, protest. Mayor Daley responded by saying that in Chicago, quote, there are no ghettos, end quote. But in the city's black neighborhoods, students were being taught in, quote, Willis wagons, end quote. Mobile homes named for the school superintendent. The Willis wagons were parked outside aging buildings, their classrooms filled beyond capacity, while schools in nearby white areas were under-enrolled. King returned to Cabrini-Green again in 1966, when Jenner parents were in the third day of a planned five-day walk out of the school. Forty truant officers from the city had flooded the housing development that morning, going door-to-door in the row houses and high-rises, warning tenants that they could face criminal charges if they continued to keep their children at home. A rally was supposed to be held in Dolores' high-rise, but the large numbers forced it into St. Matthew's on Oak Street. Quote, Should you in any way be persecuted or prosecuted for attempting to seek the best education possible for your children? End quote. King said from the pulpit, quote, I can assure you that thousands of parents from all over this city will come to your aid and together we will join you in jail if necessary. End quote. Although the public school superintendent who replaced Willis blamed the protest on outside agitators and a handful of parent provocateurs, the organizing compelled him to transfer Jenner's principal at the end of the school year. The protests weren't always so peaceful. A few months later, at Waller, one of the neighborhood high schools, hundreds of black students took to the streets, believing that a group of white teens had thrown a black classmate onto the L tracks. The integrated school, located a mile north in Tony or Lincoln Park, had recently seen hundreds of white students transfer out. Violence spread to nearby Cooley High, a predominantly black vocational school that had taken over the building vacated by Washburn Trade. Students there exchanged gunfire with police, smashing the windows of Paul Bunyan's restaurant, Barbara's bookstore, and other local shops in the nearby Old Town neighborhood. They filled bottles with lighter fluid, set them on fire, and tossed the Molotov cocktails at passing cars. Waller students rallied soon after as they demanded their school offer a class in, quote, Negro history, end quote, and hire a black instructor to teach it. Police diverted traffic away from Cabrini Green for two hours while teenagers threw rocks and bottles to the chant of, quote, let's break up Old Town, end quote. Mm. Hey, let's get through this page and I'll re- do a re- we'll reflect on these passages. The CHA has celebrated its first developments in the 40s and 50s as, quote, children's cities, end quote, havens for the most vulnerable and blameless of the city's inhabitants. Quote, Chicago, end quote, the agency announced, quote, must plan for those other children who, through the benefits of public housing, can also become the good citizens of tomorrow, end quote. The high rises were designed to accommodate large families. Cabrini Green's towers included numerous four and five bedroom apartments. In just about any neighborhood in America, whether the old Little Hell or Bronzeville on the south side or the, quote, bungalow belt, end quote, extending from the northwest corner of Chicago all the way around to the southeast, the population averaged roughly one child for every two adults. Yet in Chicago's family public housing, the ratio skewed to more than two children for every one adult. Of the Robert Taylor Homes, 27,000 residents, nearly 21,000 were minors. In the late 60s, a property manager at Cabrini-Green reported that 20,000 people lived in the complex's 3,600 apartments, 
14,000 of them under the age of 17. Okay, I think that first thing that stands out to me is, well, this is the first that we're reading about uh, Dr. King in this in this book. And I have, I've watched documentaries, read, uh, listened to some speeches and uh, also read Dr. King's autobiography and him going to Chicago, him being in Chicago was one of the things that was very uh, monumental and pivotal in uh, in the movement that was going on in the uh, in the sixties and the fifties and the sixties. They a lot most people date the civil rights movement from nineteen fifty four when the Brown versus Board of Education was ruling came down to nineteen sixty eight when Dr. King was assassinated, and so the majority of that time was spent in the South. Uh, but Dr. King began to believe that uh, the it, the issues of poverty and the issues of uh, of ghettos and, unadded, and inadequate housing that existed in the North and that existed on the West Coast were issues that were just as pertinent, if not more pertinent, uh, than the issue of segregation. And so he began to, towards the end of his life, uh, be involved with marches and, and protests and demonstrations to try to absolve that segregation. And one of the things that always stood out to me, it was a documentary called uh, King in the Wilderness. And Dr. King and, and multiple members of the SCLC spoke about how the most hatred that they ever experienced in any marches or in any demonstrations were in Illinois, were in Chicago. And I think that that's that's one of the things that you don't hear about, that you don't hear spoken about when they show you videos and clips of Dr. King marching. Uh, this country makes it seem as if it was pro it was only in the South, primarily in the South, that the worst of racism existed in the South. And uh, when you look back and you look in deeper, all the things that were happening in the South uh, were happening in the East Coast, were happening in the Midwest, were happening on the West Coast. Uh, they just looked different. They were uh, more covert then overt for that time period, you know, for this time period, for now, the things that they did were very overtly racist. But uh, for, for that time period, what was going on in uh, the in these areas seemed to be more covert. And I think that's one of the things that we have to do the job of of, of informing and educating people is that uh, racism and prejudice and discrimination and segregation didn't only exist in the southern states. Uh, that black people didn't only and allies of black people weren't only trying to uh, march and change things in the South, but it was the entire country that exhibited these type of racist ideologies. Uh, and then also here, one of the things that stands out to me is the 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 education. Uh, the miseducation that was going on, the undereducation that was going on. And I think that a lot of times people, I think that it's, it's impossible to truly understand uh, where, uh, where black people exist in this society today when it comes to uh, education and when it comes to uh, being knowledgeable and being conscious about certain things without taking into consideration that for the overwhelming majority of the time that black people have been in this country, they have been disincentivized to learn. They have been disincentivized to uh, to read or to gain education, information. They had to fight for the, uh, the the right to even be able to read. They were initially were killed just for having the capability of reading. Uh, so they had to fight for that right. And then once they were no longer enslaved, uh, they dealt with 
uh, a lack of education. They dealt with not being properly educated, with being uh regularly falsely educated, miseducated when they would go to these public schools, uh, being miseducated by uh, white people specifically, uh, not being taught about their ancestry, not being taught about where they came from, not being taught things uh, that would empower them and empower who they were. And then on top of that, they were stuffed in these schools that were, were completely overcrowded as there were white schools that were undercrowded. And so and that's this is we're, we're reading this right here. This is 1960s. This is in the 1960s. This is the experience that people's grandparents who are alive right now had or uh, people's great grandparents who are alive right now had, depending on uh, how old you are, how old your parents are, your own parents had. And so when you're only one generation or two generations removed from purposeful government miseducation, you cannot be surprised that uh, of the dropout rates or the. Uh, the literacy rate when it comes to uh, black people in this society, when you understand the historical precedent that has come along with some of these things. And I think that that's an important thing for us to uh, continuously talk about and speak about. And then I also think that one of the things that's important to speak about here is how the, the how these families and these people were persecuted and prosecuted for being willing to struggle for better, being willing to uh, protest and demonstrate for better. These uh, families that were trying, that were allowing their kids to not go to school until they uh, gave them an equitable uh, education, they were persecuted and prosecuted. Police officers came to their door, came there threatening to arrest them, threatening to throw them in jail. Uh, and so I, I think that th those are just all things that, and again, when we are speaking about the deal, the the illegitimacy of policing. You have to remember that in this one chapter, we read about uh, kids being beat by with hoses by police officers, and now we're hearing about these same kids, if not them, their brothers or sisters or cousins or friends or neighbors, uh, being threatened to be arrested because they are protesting the conditions that they are. Uh, experiencing while in school and so again it's the reminder that police specifically for black people and people of color and, and working class lower class low class low income uh people and families and communities policing police are not there to protect are not there to serve are not there to keep you uh out of harm's way they're there to maintain the status quo they're there to uphold uh the order that exists and the order that has historically existed in this society has been a, a an oppressive one and exploitative one and so these police officers are working to uphold that type of oppressive and exploitative order mm. okay let's read let's knock out one more one more passage. Okay. For the young Kelvin Cannon, that sort of overpopulated children's city provided endless entertainment. Quote, just to keep ourselves occupied, we strayed into mischief. End quote, Kelvin would say. We had to make up our own fun. A mother might take one child with her to run an errand, leaving the rest unsupervised. They broke into the laundry and storage rooms. They gathered old bed rails or a stripped stove and tossed parts down the stairwells or off the ramps. They leaped up to shatter light bulbs. They had a game in which they parried open the elevators from inside the cabin, propping them with the stick. In the instant that the elevator passed each floor, you could jump on or off, 
or you could surf on top of the cabin as it soared the height of the towers. The toll of this mischief was high. Much of the playground equipment around them broke from overuse. The elevators couldn't handle the games, and the CHA was unable to keep pace with needed repairs. The agency said it had to replace 18,000 light bulbs every single month across its developments, and it found itself spending a huge portion of its operating budget on elevator maintenance alone. Residents too often were left to climb the stairs in the dark. At Cabrini Green, the maintenance teams racked up a list of 1,200 unfilled work orders. Leaks, cracked walls, and broken doors went unfixed. The mischief had greater cost as well. Robert Payne was a 10-year-old in one of the Red Cabrini high-rises. He leaped from a beam inside his elevator shaft and landed with two feet solidly on the roof of a rising car. His eight-year-old brother, David, jumping next to him, fell short and was crushed between the elevator and the shaft. All right, well, here, let's end this. We'll end this episode on that. I hate to end it on that note, but that's about all I can take. Uh, and so, and now we see here the same, we're on chapter three, and in the first chapter, one of the things that was being lauded was these uh, the brand new, these brand new high rises that they were building, the conditions that they were in. The Lord spoke about how the high rises were so much in so much better condition than uh, the places, the tenements that they had been living in before. And one of the things that I spoke about was in reading the book, uh, uh, Color of Law. One of the things I learned was that as these public housings would be built and say it's built in 1930, uh, as black people, more and black people will be moving into public housing and white people will be moving out of the moving out of public housing because of white flight and moving into these sub suburbs that that subsidies were allowing them to be able to purchase. You will see the maintenance and the upkeep of the uh, public housing fall off. You will see them no longer uh, fix repairs. You will see them uh, no longer come uh, in. Uh, up, update things or upgrade things and the main reason for that would would be because the people who would come to do those things who were qualified to do those things who were just quite frankly allowed to learn and allowed to do those things were all white people and the white people had no interest in making sure that the public housing was kept up to in good conditions because they didn't care what conditions that black people were living in uh, and so I think that again that's something that has to be pointed out is that uh, as with every day, week, month, and year that is passing, these the living conditions that were once uh that were once better than the tenements that they were living in, that were once an upgrade from the tenements that they were living in, uh come closer and closer to being the same type of uh substandard living that the tenements that we first heard about in chapter one were. Uh so just keep all of those things in mind. In this chapter, we've uh, we've learned how uh, the overpopulation of the schools, we've learned about the dangers that young people had to deal with, whether it was from police or from their peers when living in public housing. And now we're learning about the uh, public housing becoming uh, deteriorating as time passes by, the type of conditions that they live in deteriorating as time passing by. Uh, all right. So. Please share this episode on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Rockford Reading Daily, where we will continue reading High Rises by Ben Austin. If you have not 
listen to previous episodes of Rafa Reading Daily, would encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes. We began this podcast reading Have Black Lives Ever Matter by Mamiya Abu-Jamal. Then we read Race Matters by Cornell West. Uh, we followed that up with reading Citizen, Citizens, Cops and Power by Steve Herbert. After that, we read uh, Civil Disobedience uh, by uh, uh, Henry Thoreau. And then we read Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis. After that, we read Letter from Birmingham Jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And now we are reading High Risers by Ben Austin. All right. We outside.